Okay, so we are back at it with our class number five. Kind of hard to believe that it's already been five classes. And it's kind of scary to think about how behind I think we are from the notes I originally designed. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, what's funny is at the end of this class, my original design was to have three labs. We're going to be doing one of the three today. And then we had two more planned. Those are what will get cut, probably. Um, the actual material that we planned will continue to run just fine as was designed. I do want to say this. It might be advantageous for you if you have not already grabbed the notes in the back that you should probably scan this. In fact, I would encourage you either way to go ahead and scan this so you have access to the full set of notes thus far. And you can just save it as a browser. Every week we update that, and every week uh, we kind of add where we've been and where we are going. Let's, uh, let me start here, kind of an odd place. Up to this point, everything I've taught has been philosophical or theological. It's been abstract. It's been a variety of things for us to contemplate and consider, but we haven't actually put the uh, rubber to the road. And with all of these things, like with most things in faith, understanding it here isn't the hard part. Putting it into practice and changing this is what's difficult. So tonight we're going to do just that. And there are going to be a variety of times tonight, specifically tonight, that you are going to feel uncomfortable, regardless of who you are or where you come from. Everyone will feel uncomfortable at different points. I would invite you to embrace the discomfort that you feel. And I would invite you to kind of sit in it. You're going to want to rush me past the discomfort into the answers. Or you're going to want to push back against me because of your discomfort. But sometimes discomfort's exactly what we need for practical growth. So there's my disclaimer. Hold your stones. Maybe I deserve them. And I will gladly allow you to throw them but all in its due time. And even if I don't deserve them, you can feel free to stone me. Either way, it's cool. So up to this point, we have covered a variety of things. Let's do a lightning recap. We started week one by talking about the idols that stand in the way of us being able to understand God's word. The story that we used when we broke down these idols was the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. These three idols were the idol of Scripture, the temptation we have as people to make the Bible say something it doesn't or do more than it can. Many Christians, if we're being honest, are actually Biblians who try to build their entire faith on their personal understanding of Scripture. But the Bible's clear that it's not strong enough to support that. The only foundation strong enough to support our faith is Jesus. Second is the idol of theology. Perhaps the one that we in the 21st century struggle with the most. It's the temptation to speak on behalf of God, to make our own commandments or put our own additions in Scripture, and in so doing, create the Bible to be a law book that we get to interpret perfectly and hold others to. And third, the idol of rightness, the pursuit of wisdom, and the idea that if we just interpret it all perfectly, then it'll all work out. These idols led Eve to the fall. And they will lead to our downfall as well if we fall into this trap. Secondly, we explored the nature of inspiration. 
and how the Bible is, in fact, perfect, but we defined perfect the way it defines perfect. Not perfect with regards to every single small and insignificant detail. No. But perfect in its ability to accomplish what it's set out to. That of telling the story of God through the fingerprints of man. And finally, last week, we introduced two of the three threads that every scripture has. Wherever you go, specifically in the Old Testament, there's going to be three threads that come together to teach one truth. Those three threads are the historical thread, the narrative, or uh, literary thread, and the theological thread. We talked about how history today is much different than history was back then. Today, we want certain things out of our history, like it to be unbiased, to just give us the straight facts without any of the interpretive stuff, and to make sure that it gets all those facts directly correct. But boy, let me tell you, if you've ever read a history from antiquity, they do not care about any of those things. They are very biased, often outspokenly so. And they weren't designed to teach us facts. They were designed to tell a story that served their purpose, often very biased in and of itself. And the Bible is, in fact, a history of antiquity, which means it sets out, sometimes in its bias of its writers, for a very biased goal, which is to tell the story of a loving God and his absolutely broken people. We also looked at some of the literary devices used throughout the Bible. Uh, we're not going to go back into those. I'll just say them. If you don't remember them, you can kind of flip back if you're using that. Just kind of swipe backwards. If not, we'll uh, review them naturally as we go. The, mir the idea of mirisms, chiasms, acrostics, and another one that we'll learn tonight. So, lightning recap. Took longer than I expected, but here we are. I also want to say this is the last time I'm going to recap all of that. We're kind of entering into our halfway point. And so from here on out, I won't be recapping all the way back to class one every time, but I wanted to make sure we're all up to date to the end of this lab. And then next time, it's all new stuff from here on. Let's uh, pick up where we left off with the third thread of theology. Covering history and literature, every story in the Bible also has its primary and third thread that needs to be tied in. This third thread is called the thread of theology. Mainly... Every story in the Bible is designed to teach us something about either God or our relationship with him. Every text in the Bible is designed for one of those two purposes. With that understood, this has been a huge problem for us, especially in the West. Because we like to spend a lot of time arguing over what parts of a story are historical and what parts of them fall into the poetry or literature. And we fight 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 over those details. Well, I think this story is mostly figurative or not figurative at all or literal or not literal. I think it's poetry or it's science. And we argue and argue and argue. And at the end of it, after arguing our round way in circles, we never actually get to the theology, the point of the text itself. And the point of the text itself is always with the end of God. The prophet Asaph, um, he was the priest of music and temple worship in the time of David. Uh, by the way, you know how, like, in all the Psalms, when it begins, like, from David to the choir master, Asaph was the choir master. That was, that was who this was. And he actually spent some time not only receiving and organizing the, the songs and hymns that they would sing, but he also wrote a couple. And all of his taught the exact same idea. That every story in the Bible was designed to lead the people to a better understanding of God. 
So Asaph spent all of his psalms, specifically we can see this in Psalm 77, Psalm 78, and Psalm 80, where he tells large portions of the Israelite history, but he does so in a poetic way. And in every single one, he says, like he does here in Psalm 78, verse 4, that the stories were designed to teach of Yahweh, God, his strength, his power, and the amazing things he can do for you. This was the primary objective of, well, the stories. If we're going fast, I will slow down in a moment. I apologize. Got to get through this little intro bit. The wise men of Korah, also in the time of David, say the same kind of thing. They uh, write several psalms, again, like Asaph, telling the stories of the Bible, but always trying to get them to realize that the reason they hear these stories told from the temple and shouted from the rooftops is not because they're just trying to learn a bit of history, nor they're trying to learn a bit of science. No, these stories are here to teach us about Yahweh. That's their primary objective and what they do if they're succeeding. But if they don't accomplish those ends, this is a big one. If they don't accomplish the end of teaching us about God, then the scripture has failed in its primary objective. Let me ask you, scripture doesn't fail. We do. So if we get caught in scripture arguing about things to the point where we miss what it's teaching us about God, then we have failed and let down scripture. A reminder that the purpose of the Bible is a treasure map to point through itself to the treasure of Jesus. So, though it's important to spend time with the map, it's more important to spend time with the treasure. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5, articulates an idea that I think is really beautiful. He talks about, and specifically you see this, especially in Proverbs, but also in Ecclesiastes, his personal struggle to try to prove everything. I think Solomon and I would have gotten along or fought a lot. Or both, probably. Because he wanted to prove every single thing. He wanted to overthink everything. He wanted to have every answer perfectly timed and articulated. And at the end of it all, he was left at the end of a book of Ecclesiastes going, I don't know about most of this stuff. All I know is this. I really enjoy a hard day's work. I really enjoy being with my family. And I super enjoy God. And the rest of it, I, it's up in the air. But as he's giving advice on how to fully get out the most out of his relationship with God, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, look what he says. Let your heart trust in the Lord alone, and do not support yourself on your own understanding. Notice what he doesn't say here. Let your heart trust in the scriptures alone. No. Let your heart fully understand the Bible and all of its, and all of its intricacies so... You can be supported in your own under... No. Let your heart trust in God. And do not support yourself on your own understanding. As we approach this third thread of theology, trying to understand the history and the literature that gets us to this point, it's really important that we understand that the one entity in the universe who can provide us truth is the Holy Spirit. And it's not me. And, frankly... It's not you. The only way we'll ever get the most out of Scripture is when we humble ourselves and let him speak through it. And when we're not humbling ourselves and letting the Holy Spirit guide us into Scripture, we find ourselves like the Pharisees. Feel sorry, you teachers of the Scriptures, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You have ignored the things that actually matter to the law. 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have done the tithing, but without forgetting these things, and this is a line that really hits me hard. You blind guides, you strain out a tiny gnat, but choke on a camel. Matthew 23, 24, and 25. We get caught arguing and fighting. Sometimes we strain the gnat. Debating over history and literature at the expense of the theology that the Holy Spirit tries to get us through. In fact, this is one thing that's really weird. I did Bible Bowl my whole life. And guys, I got to tell you something. I was really good. Like, perfect score three consecutive years at Alkire Road. I got the plaques to prove it. It also helped that there was a young lady who I had a massive crush on at the time. She was in our youth group, and she was like the number one superstar, and I thought the only way to impress her was, of course, never miss a question in Bible Bowl. Turns out, I never missed a question in Bible Bowl, and I still didn't impress her. Um, women, what are you going to do? Uh, but, so I spent all of this time memorizing every detail, right? I can tell you, lineage, I can still run through genealogies. Whole genealogies from memory. I could tell you dates and times and places I used to be able to. I don't think I can anymore. I could tell you every spot through the entire 40-year Exodus journey in order. I could even give you dates of when it happened. I could tell you the generals of armies and battles that fought. I could tell you the number of people who fought in the battles and how many people died. And at the end of it all, you want to know what really blew my mind? I thought I was such a biblical scholar because I had all this in my brain. That's all I read what Jesus said. And I realized that it's good to know that stuff, sure. That's not what makes you a biblical scholar. What makes you a biblical scholar is your ability to take what you know and actually do something with it. That was the one part of Bible Bowl that they did not prepare me for. In Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, actually, I'm going to stop talking. Let someone else read here. Um, if you're uh, following on the notes behind me, we're on page 39. If you're not following the notes, I don't have it in front of me. Your guys' handout, page 3. Could someone please read for me Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Thank you. Jeremiah is understanding this. He's relaying the words of God. Don't come to me with all that you think you know. Don't come to me with all of your claimed intellect. Don't come to me with genealogies and numbers and battle places and maps. It's fine to know that. It's actually good to know that. It means you're reading your Bible. But come to me with what actually matters, which is the humility to say that I know God. This is where the Bible is at its finest. When the history, the stories it tells, and the literature, the poems, and the way it conveys it, leads us to that point right there that we can comfortably say, I know God. Some of the most powerful, profound, and theologically challenging statements I have ever been confronted with happens in that classroom. Who've never heard of God before, who come in like, well, they know God, but they don't have any faith background, and we start talking, we start talking, and they make these beautiful proclamations as they start to come to realizations of who Jesus is. We had a kid 
three or four months ago who was not a Christian, who was coming to us, visiting with us, and it was awesome. After class came up to MJ and I, and I think Casey Burkhardt was there, and we were all talking amongst ourselves. They came up, and they asked a question, and they said, do you really believe that God can look as good as that? I didn't skip a beat. I was like, yes, I think he actually can be better than that. And then he goes, if Jesus really is that beautiful, then how come, then how come anyone can look away? And I said, can you? He said, no. Right there is the most profound theology I've heard in a long time. Jesus is so beautiful, I just can't look away. Yes, that kid who Joshua's the son of, he's not going to say none. But ultimately, he has a good theology. And it's growing and it's building. Let's make sure we don't get caught up in knowing the history and knowing the literature at the expense of the theology that it's trying to point to. And seen. Anybody have any questions on that? Kind of a wrap-up of, of the three threads. History, literature, and theology. Sorry, it's me, Dave. I was listening. My bad. <laughs> Dave's over here like, what is going on? Yeah, that's me. Sorry. Okay. Tonight, we begin the lab. I don't think we'll get through it, but I am super excited about it. And also, admittedly, let me just be vulnerable for a second, very nervous about it. When I was putting together how I wanted to test this, I wanted to take a story out of the Old Testament. I wanted to drop it through all that we've been talking about, right? I wanted to take a story and apply our three models, our threads, history, literature, and theology. I wanted to do it, and I wanted a story that carries with it a lot of idolatry, that we can see the way that the three idols really affect us. So I chose a couple, and I was talking to MJ and my dad, and we chose, well, I chose, because they told me the other ones were a little too, like, we'd get in fights and stuff that was unnecessary. But I wanted to choose one that was a little bit uncomfortable. This is what we landed on, the idea of creation. So tonight we're going to take the story of creation, and we're going to drop it through the lenses we've been studying. And we're going to see the story from a hopefully a new light. Let me offer two quick disclaimers up front. Disclaimer numero uno, I am not here by any means to teach any form of creation. Nope. I'm not going to get up here and be like, seven literal days, 24 hours, no questions, move on. I'm not going to say that. I'm also not going to get up here and be like, allegorical, the whole lot of it. I'm not going to say that. Ultimately, that's not the point of this class. The point of this class is to interpret what the Bible's historical literature and theological threads of the story of creation are. And how in the modern world we really struggle with idolatry is specifically in this story. So that's where we're going. And this is where we'll start. Let's start. Page 40. Slash Madison Whitmer. Creation, the historical thread. Is that four? Okay, yeah. Creation, the historical thread. Find that. That's where we're going to start right now. Again, I want to remind us that I wrote all this before the class fell, and so I thought we would finish theology last week. So I already had the recap. We're just skipping the recap. Don't need to do two recaps in one lesson. That would be excessive. So let's start with the history here. So Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible outside of this, Go ahead and open it and put it to the side. We're not going to touch it right now, but we will touch it in just a moment. Uh, and if you want to have it open in front of you, I always think it's good. I mean, it's the Bible. Opening it up is generally not a bad thing. 
The narrative of Genesis 1, the story of Genesis 1, is traditionally ascribed to being written by Moses and all the judges that helped him write the Torah. Um, this idea was to write what has already been understood as an oral tradition to the Jews. What I mean by that is this. This is, what I'm about to say is a very small thing that after a second you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But when you first hear it, at least when I heard for, first heard it or thought of it, it kind of blew my mind. Moses did not receive the story of creation from God. The first time that Moses heard the story of creation was probably from his mom. Because that's how they told the stories of the Bible, orally. Growing up, as I will tell my daughter, I'm sure, some, some stories... So, too, that's how the Jews passed down their history, was through the stories that they would tell their kids. So Moses was already familiar with the idea of creation. God didn't have to tell it to him. Likewise, all of the stories leading up to where he is today was also taught to him by the Hebrews and their people. Because back then, they didn't have written histories. The Bible is one of the oldest ones we have. They didn't write down all of their stories. I would hear it from my father and pass it down to my son, their son to their son, and on and on and on. That's how the histories were remembered. This process of father telling son, telling son, telling son, was called an oral tradition. The stories told orally, generation to generation. So Genesis, the book of Genesis, was simply Moses compiling and writing the stories that the Hebrews had told for generations, thousands of years. Creation and many other stories described in the first 11 chapters specifically were the basis of their origin. And it was designed to accomplish things like explaining creation, how the world came to be, why there's sin, why there's violence, why is there a need to obey God, what's the origin of languages, why are there different cultures, and why is there racial diversity, all of these questions that ancient people had, Genesis 1 through 11 answered. Now, the transition of the oral tradition to a written tradition was vital to God. And God waited a really long time and for the right person to do it. Because as soon as the oral tradition, the stories passed down generation to generation, was put onto stone, can't change anymore. So when God chose Moses and the judges to write this story, to, to transcribe the story they have told each other for generations, there was a huge weight on his shoulders. And God was trying really, really hard to make sure that there wasn't any more fingerprints added along the way. The people didn't like it, though. The people didn't understand this whole newfangled reason to write things down. Why would they? It's always served good enough to just have it told generation to generation. One of the most ironic things that I learned through this study is the reason the Jews believed Mount Sinai was such a spectacle, right? Why did God have to, like, make it look like a volcano cloud? Why did lightning have to strike, and why did he have to boom his voice from heaven? I always thought it was because he was trying to show the people that he was there. But frankly, if the people didn't know that a God who just days before was a giant pillar of fire during the night and a giant pillar of cloud during the day was no longer there, they missed the point. The actual reason Mount Sinai was such a spectacle is because God wanted to give Moses authority. So that way when Moses came down with these writings... They held the weight of God. That was the point. That's why Moses had to be consecrated before he approached the mountain. He wanted everyone to know that what's coming down off the mountain is God's story. And so Genesis was written and brought down from the mountain. 
a transcription of all the stories in history they have told each other for generations. Now, this is important for another reason as well. This is a weird one to say. There are fingerprints of generations upon the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. Fingerprints all over it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And now imagine how much more fingerprints there were because these, especially the book of Genesis, the first 50 chapters of the Bible, were all told generation to generation to generation. Now, I don't know about you, but if my dad tells me a story and then I tell you a story, there's going to be dad's flares and bishop's flares ultimately passed on. My fingerprints are going to be on the story. My dad's fingerprints are going to be on the story. It's just part of telling stories. So when Genesis was finally written, there was the divine truth, but there was also human fingerprints all over it. And before, just to remind us, before we start getting concerned about that, a couple weeks ago we talked about how that's exactly the point of the Bible. In fact, the human fingerprints on the story of Genesis is actually what makes Genesis so beautiful. Because God could have done it better, but he wanted to do it with us, as he does with all things. The story of the Jews was their story, God's and theirs together. Generations of fingerprints on it. And as it was being read, every Jew that listened to the story for the first time of Genesis chapter 1 would have been moved, remembering the time their mother said it to them by the fire in Egypt. It's a beautiful moment, full of human fingerprints. But one stipulation that God gave Moses on the mountain, we actually see this a lot in the Mishnah, but we don't see it in the Bible, is that God specifically was like, hey, Moses, write the stories, not your words. Write the stories, not your interpretation of the stories. So Moses wrote what is called the written Torah, the first five books in writing. But he also implemented what is called an oral Torah, which is basically he came down off the mountain, he read Genesis. And all the Hebrews were like, yes, we know these stories. These are beautiful. But then the logical next question is, but so what? There's the oral Torah. Moses then sat and interpreted those stories of what that should teach the people. But the Jews were very specific that they weren't going to write down the oral Torah. They weren't going to write down interpretations of Scripture. Their rationale was very simple. They wanted God to be able to use the stories generation to generation in different ways. Which, by the way, is why the New Testament writes the way they do about the Holy Spirit. Don't know about you. Maybe I'm weird. I am weird. But maybe you're kind of weird like me. That you'll be reading 2 Timothy chapter 2. And you're struggling with financial concerns. 2 Timothy chapter 2 doesn't really handle financial concerns. But for some weird reason, reading 2 Timothy chapter 2, your mind is drawn to another passage or thought that gives you infinite peace. Or maybe pricks your heart to pray to God. Well, 2 Timothy wasn't what guided you there. No, it was the Holy Spirit using that text to give you a truth you needed in the moment. Likewise, the oral Torah was designed for that reason. That as I'm the teacher or the priest, and you are my students at the synagogue, and I read to you Genesis 1, I can then interpret Genesis 1 as the Holy Spirit's moving me. Just like I do every Sunday or Dad does every Sunday in the sermons. Understanding that the interpretation needs to be left up to the situation because God's going to use it in profound ways. So the Torah came down. The written and the oral. The Bible and its interpreters. 
They believed that this was a massive moment for humanity. And it was, especially in Genesis 1 for the story of creation. We're going to skip down for a little bit. I'm not going to go through everything right now with, uh, just for time's sake, but it's here in your notes. There's going to be a lot of times we're going to do that because I put way more notes in here than is necessary so that if you're curious, you can go back and study on your own. Uh, we are going to skip down to subpoint I. Moses compiled this story for God's perfect narrative. He was moved by the Spirit to include the story of creation, Genesis chapter 1, as was handed down from his ancestors. And it was designed to teach three historical truths. And listen very closely to what I'm about to say. These are the three historical truths that the story of Genesis 1 wanted to accomplish. And as we'll see in a moment, this is not Bishop Darby's opinion. This is what the rest of the Old Testament points to and says this is what we're supposed to learn from creation. First, God created the universe. That's the first historical truth. That one's the easy one. Second, God believed it was time for Moses to write down the story of how God created the universe. Again, pretty self-explanatory, number two. But number three, though it draws deeply from other stories that we'll talk about later, ancient Near Eastern stories, Egyptian stories, stories they would have heard in Egypt, the Jews were telling a very different story about a very different God. One of the biggest challenges I ever had was I had to read the Enuma Elish in college. If you've never read the Enuma Elish, do. It's wild. It's an ancient Near Eastern creation story written around the same time as the Bible. They're very similar in some ways until you realize that, like, the base reason God wanted to create was because he loved people. The base reason they wanted to create was it was an accident because they got in too big of a fight with a rowdy dragon. And though the order of creation was very similar, there was like seven days and it happened similarly, the outcome and the rationale was vastly different. The stories influenced each other for sure, but the God was very different than Baal. It's the beauty of the story that the Jews told rather than anyone else. Genesis 1 was designed to show a God who was very different, very powerful, but in a very unique way. So the history of creation, the creation story, the first thread, the most boring thread, we're about to get to the fun ones, history is always the most boring thing to talk about, is that God created the universe, God wanted Moses to write about the creation of the universe, and God was telling a very unique story with the creation of the universe. Those are the three things we learn from the historical side of Genesis 1. Again, sorry, that's super boring. Any questions? People on the podcast are going to hate me. I bet it's so high-pitched. Genesis? Yeah, so there's two places we could go for that. The most logical is Jesus. It doesn't say in Genesis that Moses wrote Genesis. But it says that Jesus says that Moses wrote Genesis. Yeah, so it's New Testament pointing back. And the Jews understood that the Torah, the first five books, were written by Moses. And he actually does cite, Moses himself does cite that in Deuteronomy, that he wrote the first five books. He called it the Torah, but yeah, the first five books. Yeah, Pentateuch. It's a fun word to say. We're actually about to get to my favorite word. I just threw it in here because it's fun to say. No reason at all it needed to make it to this class. No reason at all. But I just, I really like it. We'll get there. 
Actually, I don't think we're going to get there tonight, which is really sad. We might get there next week. But just remember, you're going to hear a really fun word, and I'm going to smile when I say it, and you're going to be like, that's the one. Also, random fact, favorite Greek word? Electora. You know what it means? Rooster. Such a cool word for such a lame meaning. Okay. Let's roll to the second thread, the actual fun one. Uh, the literary thread. So there's one thing you need to know about Hebrew poetry. One thing. Anywhere you go in the Bible, if you're trying to decide, am I reading a poem or am I not reading a poem, the number one place to go is the idea of parallelism. There's a fancy Latin word. Doesn't matter. Just parallelism. Parallelism is the idea that there are two lines side by side that say either the same thing or very different things, and it's used for poetic effect. Just like even today, if I get up here and I start quoting something and I start rhyming, you're going to immediately go, oh, he's reading a poem. Because in English, rhyming is often identifier of poetry. Likewise, if I get up and I was a Hebrew speaker and I started reading something with parallelism, you'd be like, oh, this is a poem. Here's some examples. Psalm 25, verse 4. Show me your ways, dear Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Show me your ways means the exact same thing as teach me your paths. In fact, in Hebrew, there is one word difference, the word show and the word teach. But English translators find it very boring to say, show me your ways, teach me your ways, things like that. But it's the idea, it's the same idea on both sides, two lines that say the same thing. Can someone read for me Proverbs chapter 1, verse 31? Again, we see that same parallel lines. Eat the fruit of their choices, be satisfied with their own desires. What about Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 8? Okay. So again, we actually have a lot of parallels here where it says, for instance, it will sweep into the land of Judah. There's one. The other line, it will pass through. Then it will reach up, and then it will submerge. Do you see how all of these ideas are parallel? They're saying the same thing in different ways. This is a huge identifier for poetry. If at any point in the Bible you're reading something and you see parallel lines start to form, no, I'm reading a poem. Likewise, the opposite end, the antithesis. If two lines say the exact opposite, why are you laughing at me? Can I say something dumb? Why are you laughing at me? Am I, am I getting too excited? I'll settle down. Antithesis. When parallel lines express opposite things. We have like, for instance, Proverbs 11.3. The purity of the upright sustains them, but, the opposite, the impure are undone by their dishonesty. Proverbs 29.27. The just detest the unjust. The unjust Detest the just. Psalms 20, verse 8. They fall and collapse, but we rise and stand. You see how this works? Two lines that say the same thing or opposite things. It's an identifier. Ding, ding. There's poetry. Likewise, there's other things that we talked about last time. Chiasms. When a story is told in a similar structure. Mirisms. When you say things like, day and night, I studied for this class in preparation to teach you. I didn't literally stay up day and night, but you get the point. By saying day and night together, I'm saying, that's all I did, was prepare this class for you. 
Um, or light and darkness. It's an encompassing idea. That's a mirrorism. An acrostic. Evil. Every villain is lemons. Acrostic. It's beautiful. Powerful. What? It would be this uh, acronym would be. Acronym is when it's just one word, right? An acrostic is when it, the line starts with the first letter. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Acrostic is the acrostic is the words. Acronym is the letters. Ironically, evil is both. We have a square and rectangle situation on our hands, and I was not good at geometry. But let's jump into the poetry of Genesis chapter 1. Because early on, you're going to see some incredible things. As you start reading Genesis 1, as you do any text, start immediately trying to look out for poetry. And it doesn't take long before we see that the entire story of Genesis 1 is told in a chiasm. For instance, follow this, and it's color-coordinated in your notes, because apparently I don't care about spending for colored ink. Uh, day 1, light. That's what happens first day of creation, light is made. It's a separation of light and darkness. Day two, sea and sky, they're separated, waters from the sky. Day three, land and plants. The land and plants, God's pulling things out of the land, there's a separation. But then notice what happens. After day three, the same story is told, flipped. Day four, the sun and moon and stars fill the light and darkness. Remember, day one and day four are parallel. Light was made, day four the things that made the light were made. Day five, fish and birds. This one corresponds perfectly to day two, which was sea and sky. Day six and day three are paired. Day three, the land and plants. Day six, the animals and humans that would feed and live on the land and plants. Do you see how that works? Same story, same structure. The idea of chiasm. So right there, our mind, our antennas should go up. That what we're reading is a poem. Beautiful poem at that. But then we have to keep looking for other literary devices. Like, for instance, mirrorisms. Remember, when two things that are opposite are told to show totality or fullness. I'm not going to go through all of these. Because there are 13 of them, and they get really repetitive. Heavens and earth. Light and day and night. Evening and morning. Evening and morning. Land and sea. Evening and morning, day and night, day and night. I said I wasn't going to read all of them. Light and darkness, evening and morning, evening and morning. You get the point. On and on it goes. Mirrorisms show the totality of something. Second form of poetry used here in Genesis 1. Three, remember the big one. If it has this, it's poetry. Parallelism. Verse 2, formless and void. Literally one letter apart in the Hebrew language, tohu e bohu. Verse 6, separation of water, separation of water. Verse 11, let them bring forth plants, seed-bearing plants, which is trees that bear fruits, with each fruit according to its kind. Verse 14, verse 21, verse 22, verse 22, verse 24, verse 25, you can go on. Verse 26 and verse 31, I didn't put those in there, but they're there. You get the point. Synonymous parallelisms all over the place. Even antithetical ones, heaven and earth, darkness and light, water and sky, 
two great lights, the moon and sun. Waters team, birds fly, waters earth, you get the point. Poetry everywhere. Including the identifying mark of what makes a passage in scripture poetry. And just for fun, we are going to get to it. There's an acrostic at the end of this chapter. I have the Hebrew there, which I realize means nothing, but it still just looks cool. A sixth day is the last phrase in Hebrew, in verse 31. And then at the beginning of verse chapter 2, verse 1, which they actually have as the same verse in the Jewish text. So the heavens, and then it goes on to say, and the earth were made. But here's the kicker. This is a nerd alert. I'm just warning you. Every single time he says there was a sixth day, or there was a fifth day, there was a fourth day, there was a third day, it's the same way he says it over and over and over again. But here he makes a grammatical error, a very clear grammatical error. It's not the sixth day, it's a sixth day. Why? I mean, that's not even good grammar. Why would he do that? Because by changing that one clause, it spells out the tetragrammaton. That's the word, tetragrammaton. Go home and impress people with that. Literally, the the four-letter name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. He ends it by emphasizing the point that God did it, and he did it by ending with the name of God. From start to finish, Moses went out of his way, out of his way to incorporate as much poetry into this text as possible. It is rich. It is figuratively beautiful. And it is an absolute shine of literature. Stunning. But because of this, we're left with a problem. A problem that has plagued Christianity over the last 125 years where we spend a lot of time arguing over which parts of this story fall into the historical category and which parts fall into the poetry. Churches have been split over people's interpretations of how to read this. What to do with Genesis 1? Is it just a poem? Is it all history? Is it a combination of the two? And what's ironic is I have been in so many of these conversations between people who believe in seven literal days and people who believe it's allegorical, people who are theistic evolutionists and people who all sorts of conversations I've been a part of. And what cracks me up is that the story, the rest of the Old Testament points to what it wants you to get out of the story. And what it wants you to get out of the story is a very central truth that God is sovereign and powerful. And ironically, what's missed in all of the dialogues I've ever heard about the poetry of Genesis 1 is, ironically, the thing it's trying to prove, which is God is powerful. Christians screaming red in the face at each other over, this part is poetry, no, this part is historical, yelling and screaming and missing that God is sovereign. Caught up in nuanced arguments at the expense of what the text is trying to say. Skipping down to the theological thread as we pull this third, pull this, my goodness, pull this third thread out. Third thread. This theological thread, that's too many T's. We're going to see what the Old Testament is trying to say. Um, uh, subsection C under that, is that dear? What? Ten. Turn to page Ten. I will need three people to read. We're going to look at these uh, Old Testament passages here. Nehemiah 9.6. Nehemiah, smallest man in the Bible. Nehemiah. 
Actually, it's Ethan the shoe height. Yes, okay. Nehemiah 9.6, Isaiah 37.16, and Psalm 8.3. Who wants to read Nehemiah 9.6 for me? Okay, Isaiah 37, 16. Thank you. Psalm 8, 3. And I put an ellipsis there because it's actually a very long psalm that goes through a lot of things God did and ends with the power of God. But that's where it's going. In all three of these instances, in all three of these stories, we see the same concept that people want us to draw from creation. Ironically, what does Nehemiah, Isaiah, and the psalmist here in Psalm 8 not do? They don't argue over the details. That's not the point. What are they pointing? Excuse me, what are they pointing to? The power of Yahweh. Look around you. Look how stunning and beautiful the world is. God did that. Yahweh, not other gods, no one can compare. That was the first theological truth, that God is sovereign as the lone creator. The second was that the creation was made fundamentally good. Days one, two, three, four. Actually, there was one day, I think it was day three that missed that. Can't remember off the top of my head. Basically, every day except for day six had the same line at the end. You remember? And God looked at all that he made, and it was, yes, except for day six, when it was very good. Exactly. Thursday school, there it is. So here we go. We have this idea set before us that all of creation was intrinsically good. Now, we ruined it because we are the worst, but at one point, creation was good. The third theological truth is that God did this by overcoming conflict. Throughout the Old Testament, God overcoming the darkness, overcoming the waters, these are all told in epic battle scenes as God is surveying the chaotic waters that are bubbling against him and he strikes it down with his lightning spear. And sometimes there's even like dragons that come out of the water. They're really fun to read. Um, but they're all over the Old Testament pointing back to creation standing as a time when God looked at the chaos and made order, when God looked at the darkness and made light. And it set a tone for all people who would read the story, all people who want to follow the creator. That we're all to do the same thing, right? Overcome the darkness, control the chaos, and be the light to the world. The three theological truths. We have the history of the text. We see that it's very poetic. And then the clear theological thing. The things that we're supposed to learn. God is sovereign. Creation is and will, was and will be again good. And that God stands over the chaos. It's a simple story. A stunning poem, and yet full of idolatry, is it not? We're not going to get to it tonight. Next week we'll pick this up. But what if I told you, just to whet your appetite, what if I told you that historically the view that the story should be read literal was not what anyone believed? What if I told you that for many centuries it was interpreted only as a poem? What if I told you that no one cared? And what if I told you that today, I think we're missing the point of the story of creation. I think the point is to draw people to the beauty of God.
Next week, we'll explore how this story can become idolatrous for us. How we can fall victim to the idol of scripture, especially with creation. The idol of theology, trying to speak more into the story than it claims to own. And the the idol of rightness, our willingness to fight to the death over things that ultimately may not matter. And we're going to do so by looking at a variety of things. If If you are a curious type, I wanted to go ahead and give you the notes so you could look over them. But if you scroll through or flip through, you're going to see a variety of quotations from church fathers, from early rabbis, that all kind of talk about different views. And how no one needed to agree in order to be unified. And how today, whatever your view of creation is, that shouldn't dissuade you from loving God. And it shouldn't dissuade us from being accepting of it. Here's the deal. Up to this point, everything's been theoretical. But now we're putting our feet to the fire a little bit. Challenging our preconceived notions that we have to be right. That we have to win the argument. That we have to convince people of the truths that we have found. And instead, changing our mindset from one of victory to one of humility. Letting the Bible and the Holy Spirit speak for itself. And letting us be transformed by its words. Rather than trying to transform it. Augustine, in a quote that we'll study next week, had a line that I thought was beautiful. It was on the book, ironically entitled, On Genesis. Fitting. When he said, look... It's really important as we as Christians explore the Bible that we let the Bible speak truth into our faith instead of trying to get our faith to speak truth into the Bible. This is a topic where we've done that. There's many topics where we've done that. If we're being honest as a church and as a Christian community, most of the time we're speaking for the Bible instead of letting the Bible speak for us. And until we stop doing that, until we sacrifice our, willing, our, our desire to always be right, then we'll never be what God wants us to be. And we'll never hold the truths he wants us to know. Sacrificing our rightness is a challenge. It was hard for Eve. That's why it led to her eating the apple. And it's hard for us today. Let's conclude with our prayer from uh, today's prayers from Basil of Caesarea. Let's pray. Steer the ship of my life, good Lord, to your quiet harbor, where I can be safe from the storms of sin and conflict. Show me the, the course I should take. Renew in me the gift of discernment so that I can always see the right direction in which I should go. Give me the strength and the courage to choose the right course, even when the sea is rough and the waves are high, knowing that through enduring hardship and danger in your name, we shall find comfort and peace. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so next week we can finish up our lab, talk about the history of this view, and how we can, as Christians, change the narrative around creation from one of not having to win every fight, but of one of teaching people the sovereign power of God. That's next week, and that's class.